0: If you are taking notes this morning, which I always would encourage you to take notes, the title of our message is, You Must Be Born Again, with the word must in there, being the word that stands out. You must be born again. We're looking at the first 15 verses of John chapter 3 this morning, which for many of you, John chapter 3 is a very famous passage in the scriptures. Many people refer to the the exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus, and specifically to verse 16. But as you'll see in our text this morning, we're not making it to verse 16. Lord willing, we'll start with that verse next week. But the summary will be 1 through 15. So I'm going to start off with a question. What does it mean to be born again? What does that mean? It's a term we use often in, in, in Christianity. We talk about being born again. But what exactly does that mean? Once you to think about that. You don't have to shout out an answer, but come up with an answer to yourself. What does it mean to be born again? And interestingly enough, currently in our culture, that term has been hijacked. It's been hijacked and taken over. And now people say, those who talk about being born again, they're these radicalized, extremist Christians. You know, they're on the verge of all these crazy stuff. Those are those born-again Christians. But the reality, as we'll see from Jesus' teaching this morning, is all those who are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are born again. That there's nothing wrong with that term. As a matter of fact, that's what we need. We need to be born again. We must be born again believers. As with every other study that we go through the book of John, and by the way, by the time, Lord willing, we get through the book of John, you'll have this verse probably memorized, but it's why did John write the gospel? Why did he pen this gospel? According to John chapter 20, verse 31, John the Apostle wrote it, that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So far, we looked at that verse every single week, and hopefully sooner or later, you'll be able to tell me what verse I'm about to go to. We know, Pastor, you're about to go to John 20, verse 31, to tell us why these things were recorded. But there's so you might believe. Some people say, Pastor, you're so evangelical, you always give a message and drive home the need for salvation. These things were recorded for that very purpose. That we would know that we know that we know that we belong to Him. That none of us would go through this life being deceived thinking that I know Jesus, and one day stand before Him and say, depart from me, I never knew you. My calling the passion God has given me is to love you and to teach you the truth and to encourage you to walk in the truth, to live out the truth, to know the truth, to be able to stand firm saying, I know that I have been born again. I know that God has made me a new creation. I know that I am His, that I have an everlasting hope, that there is no question or doubt in my mind, that I'm not trying to do more to try to earn God's favor, but I know what Christ has done for me, and I trust in that wholeheartedly. That's the encouragement to you. So let's continue this morning. If you, are, if you have your Bible open or you have your bulletin open, go ahead and stand with me as we honor the public reading of God's Word together. John chapter 3, I'll be reading the first 15 verses again. Beginning in John chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. By the way, yes, I just ripped off the title right there. It's the title of our sermon. You must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So reads God's infallible, inerrant, and holy written word. Please be seated, church. Before we continue our study this morning, let's go ahead and ask the Lord to reveal Himself to us through His Word this morning. Father, we come before You in the name of Jesus and ask God that as we look at Your Word that You would reveal Yourself to us. That You would reveal Yourself more and more. That You would draw us nearer and nearer to Yourself. And God, You look down and know the hearts and minds of every one of us in this room. And Father, I pray that if anyone here does not genuinely know You, that today you would cause them to be born again. Father, perk up their ears to hear and their hearts to receive and to respond. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In regards to this passage in John chapter 3, I love what R. Kent Hughes sums up. It should be up on the screen for you all to read it. He says, This encounter with Nicodemus is relevant for us today. The term born again has been pirated emptied of its meaning, dragged through the gutter, and given back to us minus its power. Today, when a person says he is born again, we cannot be sure what he or she means. The mere use of the word tells us almost nothing. The truth, however, is that when one is really born again, there is a radical repentance, a radical work of the Spirit in the life and a radical change so that the whole being is brought into new life. The results are discernible. They can be seen. That's how he summed up this whole passage here. This whole interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus about being born again. That many people either will use the term and have no clue what it actually means, Our media and everybody else will go after those who are born again and attack that they are the radicalized ones. But what does it genuinely mean? It means God has come in and radically changed somebody, has created them anew. So this morning, as we study this passage in John chapter 3, we'll be looking at five points. Point number one will be the religious, first two verses. Point number two will be the regenerated. I'll explain what that is when we get to verse 3 through 6. And then the reaction, the rebuke, and the reward. Let's go ahead and begin with point number one, the religious. Looking again at verses 1 and 2, we read, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, it's it's important for us to understand the transition of what John just recorded right before this. Because we're getting into this interaction with Nicodemus, but what was just written prior to this is important. So look back in your Bibles or up on the screen. Right previous to this, we read in verses 23 through 25. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Now when he, being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Stop there for a second. They believed in his name. Just that statement alone would make it think, make you believe that that's some kind of saving faith. But what they believed in is he actually did what they saw. We saw him do something and we believe what we saw. Keep reading with me. It says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What does that mean? means although these people were professing what they believed in, he looked at them there was no genuine saving faith in them. And now he transitions with an example of that, and he brings in Nicodemus. So here's a generalization at the end of chapter 2 of all these people who said they believe, and now we have an example. Here comes Nicodemus. And that's where we are right now with Nicodemus. Someone who professes some type of belief but does not have a saving belief. Do you think that's an important topic for us to discuss? Absolutely. It's a life and death matter. Because if someone professes a belief that seriously doesn't save them, it's good for nothing except to deceive them. And that's why these things are written so that we might believe and have eternal life, that we might know that we know that we know that we are saved. And here we have this interaction with Nicodemus. We learn that he is a Pharisee and that he is a leader of the Jews. Some of you are well known or know well about Pharisees. They're a leading religious party. Their opposition or their rival would be the Sadducees. But the Pharisees often came from middle class, where the Sadducees came from the more affluent. So the Pharisees had a good rapport with the people because they related better to the people. This is who he was. Nicodemus came from the Pharisees. But it it also says... That he was a ruler of the Jews. The Jews had what was called the Sanhedrin. Seventy people that gathered together that made up the law for all the Jews. Think of it like the Jewish Supreme Court. He was part of that group. He was very highly esteemed, very influential, very respected. And this man comes to Jesus. But some of you know a little background about what Jesus thought about the Pharisees. We read in the other Gospels of some things he said about the Pharisees. Those who outwardly acted all righteous, but inwardly were something quite different. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, that they are blind guides. Speaking of the Pharisees. They're blind guides. They're spiritually blind. Even with all their zeal and chasing after what they think would please God, Jesus made it clear, listen church, very confrontational. Jesus made it clear that they were headed for hell. Pastor, are you just making that up? No, let's read in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, Jesus' words. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. He has no proselyte. A follower, a believer in what you're teaching and your doctrines. You go all around to get more followers. And he says, you're leading them astray. You are blind guides. So I say all that for a little background to set us up. Here comes Nicodemus to Jesus. He's going to have a face-to-face with him. It's going to be a fun interaction. And we see in verse 2 that this man Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus by night. And he addresses Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. What attracted him to Jesus? What did he just say? Signs. And we just read the end of chapter 2. A lot of people saw signs and they had this superficial belief in what they saw, but not a saving faith in him as Savior. Here we have Nicodemus coming in saying we've seen the signs. But it also says he came by night and this has been interestingly debated by a lot of different scholars why did he come by night and i will say we cannot definitively say why because it doesn't tell us why some of the suggested reasons are john likes to contrast darkness and light throughout this gospel light being the good dark being the bad and oftentimes as you go through this gospel of john and you see dark he's referring to bad things And perhaps he's alluding here to saying the reason he came at night is because he didn't want to put himself in trouble with his peers that he is going out and seeking after Jesus. So he's going in secret. You guys know those who maybe go to church but don't want their neighbors or their friends to know? It's like, I'm in secret. I'm an undercover Christian. Scripture doesn't speak of that being a reality in anybody's life. Here we have somebody with a superficial interest and the, perhaps they're scared of the consequences if anybody finds out. So in any case, we don't know for, for definite why, but he comes by night. But we know how he addresses Jesus. He addresses him as rabbi. Rabbi meaning teacher. It was very respectful for him to come to Jesus and to address him as rabbi. Because he, being Nicodemus, is very educated. As far as they knew, Jesus had no education. And yet he's coming and referring to him as rabbi. So he's greeting him as an equal. Sounds pretty lofty, right? He's greeting him as an equal. It sounds honorable, but right off the bat, think about it, it tells us how clueless he really is. He thinks that he's elevating Jesus' status by calling him rabbi, when he's actually God. And he thinks all that he's doing to come before him, but he's truly a blind leader. Jesus was not his equal. Jesus wasn't even close to his equal. Nicodemus had seen what Christ had done. He had definitely heard of other things that he had done. And now he comes and he says, we've seen what you've done. You must be sent by God. What else was going on right before this time? You guys remember chapter 1? Somebody else that was on the scene? John the Baptist? Well, no doubt all those reports also got back to the Sanhedrin of this guy out in the wilderness who's baptizing people into repentance and pointing to this Jesus as the Son of God. Pointing to this Jesus as the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But with all that background, he comes before Jesus and he doesn't refer to Him as God. He doesn't refer to Him as Savior. He says, you're a teacher. That has come from God. Truly a blind guide here we see in Nicodemus. Church, Jesus is more than a teacher. Would you agree that he's a great teacher? Absolutely. But far more than just a great teacher. Far more than just a great man. He is God and he is Savior. If Nicodemus or if anyone else only sees him as a great teacher. They don't know him. Nor is there salvation in him. Because that's not who he is. He's not just a great teacher. He is Lord and God. But here Nicodemus comes and says, We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Just like the other crowd that was before, they saw the works. But they denied who Jesus was. They agreed to the facts of what he had done, but denied his works. Church, do you realize there are people here today that also will assent to the facts of what Jesus did? I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe this is God's word, and yet don't know him as Lord and Savior. That's scary. To be able to agree with all the facts, and yet to stand before him on a day and say, but Lord, Lord. I agreed with all the facts. And him to say, I I never knew you. Depart from me. That's why this interaction occurs. Because Jesus is going to unload something that is so central to our salvation that you must be born again. You must be born again. Nicodemus here comes before Jesus and he frames his statement in such a manner that he would think that it's going to receive some type of favorable response from Jesus says hey we've seen what you've done you must be sent from god but that's not what he's about to get from jesus and church i want you to pay attention because sometimes we think is it okay to be confrontational well if it's on righteous grounds as delivered in love absolutely jesus is going to get confrontational he's not going to go oh great Nicodemus, i'm so glad that you're interested he's going to cut straight to the chase and he's going to talk about his need to be regenerated point number two The regenerated. Point number two, read with me in verses three through six. Jesus answers Nicodemus, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So it's interesting. Here Nicodemus comes up, but Jesus doesn't at all tinker with his superficial interest. Instead, he hits him square between the eyes with the most pressing issue. What matters most? It doesn't matter that you have this little interest. It doesn't matter you might believe these little facts. The question is, have you been born again? Because if you have, as Jesus goes through this, he's going to say, you'll know. There'll be evidence of it. And he's looking at Nicodemus square in the eyes knowing he has not been born again. This man has not been born again. So he's basically saying, Nicodemus, with all your religious acts, all your religious talk, it doesn't matter at all. Unless you are regenerated, which means unless you are born again, all those things don't matter. You will not. See the kingdom of God. It's pretty confrontational. Nicodemus has given his life to go and pursue these things, to be a Pharisee, to be part of the Sanhedrin, to do what he thought was right in the eyes of God, to peck on work after work after work and think maybe I can please God. Jesus says, You're missing it. All that stuff doesn't matter. You must be born again. That unless you're born again, You're not going to see the kingdom of God. You guys remember when we were studying through the prologue of the gospel in verses 12 and 13? We spoke about this being born of God. It's a thing of God. It's God intervening on our behalf. God breathing life into us so that we can respond in faith. Look with me at verses 12 and 13 of John chapter 1. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become Children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you're looking in your Bibles or if it's up on the screen, do you notice the comma at the end of verse 12? Verse 12 is contingent upon verse 13 that the person must be born of God. It's not by their willpower, it's not because they really want it, it's because God intervened and God did a miracle. That now they've been given the right to become children of God. If you are here this morning and you are born again, that is praise to God. God has done a work in you. You know, some of us think, well, God looked down, and He saw how special I was and knew I could help Him on His team. That is not the right perspective, folks. God looked down as though we were at the bottom of the ocean, dead reached down and picked us up and breathed life into us so that we could fulfill His purpose of bringing Him glory, so we could enjoy Him forever, so we could bring Him glory. God did that work. That's what this speaks of. It's a radical change of mind. Instead of thinking, I could just do more work and maybe God will accept me. Instead, God does the work. God radically saves us. He does the miracle. He breathes life into us. And says all our works, all our efforts of trying to get better or trying to maybe make it into heaven, all those are futile. We must be born again. So Nicodemus heard this just as people will hear it today and go, I don't understand. What does that mean to be born again? In verse 4, we see Nicodemus, he goes, how can a man be born when he's old? how can he enter a second time or can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's very literal. How could he be born again? But that's a term of what does that mean to be born again? Even for some of us, we started this morning, I asked you, what does it mean to be born again? Were you able to come up with a good answer to that? Or were you kind of stumped? Like, I don't know exactly how to define that. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, A religious leader, you need to be born again. And he's clueless. I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Do I need to go back into a mother's womb to be born again? You can't do that. Jesus is speaking spiritually. Obviously, you can't crawl back into your mother to be born again. And Nicodemus wants to know, well, then how is it? It doesn't make sense to him. So Jesus then elaborates in verse 5. He says, truly, truly. Anytime he says that, it means perk up your ears. Here it comes. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now for us, a couple thousand years later, and not being scholars in the Old Testament, that's kind of confusing. What in the world was he saying? What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Jesus makes it clear, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, You're not going to see the kingdom of God. He parallels that if you look back at verse 3 with unless you're born again. So born again is the same as being born of the Spirit or born of the water and the Spirit. So my question to you is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born of the water and the Spirit? Because depending on where you've grown up in church, there's a lot of different teachings on what this means. And some will teach that these are two different things, that being born of water, they'll say, is just natural birth. It's like the amniotic fluid. And then you have the spiritual birth being born of the Spirit. And that's what they'll say that means. No. Some others will come and say, well, the water being saved by water means like baptism, that you have to be baptized and you have to be born of God. No. How do we figure out then what this means? The first clue is, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus knew the Old Testament, he taught it. So, whatever he was speaking to Nicodemus must have been something he was familiar with. The first thing that he told him is he said, Look, you must be born again, and then he equated it with, You must be born of water and the Spirit. So, basically, he's saying, Born again equals being born of water and the Spirit. You with me? As a matter of fact, if we put those two verses on top of each other. should be up on the slide. Verses 3 and 5, you'll see it. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus describes what that means. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, being born of water and Spirit is one thing. It's the same as being born again. The question still is, then what is it? What exactly is it? Especially if we must be born again. To know that we know that we know that we have salvation, we've got to know what this is. We must be born again. So, what does it mean? Well, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisee, the ruler of the Jews, brings up something that would have been familiar to Nicodemus. It would have brought to mind, being born of water and the Spirit, something from Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, that Nicodemus should have been familiar with. what is laid out there in Ezekiel chapter 36 is being born again. That God would come and do a miraculous work. That He would use the symbolism of sprinkling us with water to clean us, but then giving us a new heart. Giving us His very own Spirit. That is what is being spoken of when you must be born of water and the Spirit. Referring back to Ezekiel Chapter 36. Again, Jesus looking straight at Nicodemus saying, Nicodemus, all your religious actions don't matter. This is what matters first. You must be regenerated. You must be born again. And we throw out that word regenerate. Some of you are like, that's a big word, Pastor. Break that down. Let me give you J.R. Packer's definition of regeneration. J.R. Packer said regeneration, which means new birth. It's the spiritual change wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit in which his or her inherently sinful nature is changed so that he or she can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with His will. That's a glorious thing, church. That when we were in darkness, when we were dead in the trespasses and sins, that we might want change. You might say, you know what, I need to stop doing this. I need to change. But we've never had victory. We always went back to it because we had the same wretched old heart. We had the same wretched old flesh. But at regeneration, God gives you a new heart. He's given me a new heart. That there's evidence of change, that he's changed us from the inside out, giving us new desires, new interests. That instead of one time rebelling and running away from God, now we desire to run to him. Instead of trying to do everything on our own, now we come to him and, Lord, help. He's changed us. Radically changed us. This is why we read in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, speaking of, of God, it says He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. He didn't look down and say, oh, look, you're doing so good, I'm going to save you. But according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, again, referring to Ezekiel chapter 36, giving us a new heart, giving us His Spirit, Church, do we understand there must be divine intervention? There must be divine intervention. God must breathe life into us. He must quicken our souls to respond in faith. And no one can do this apart from Him. That's why Jesus continues with Nicodemus, because Nicodemus, everything he has done so far in his life is in his own strength, his own power. Things that he was trying to do, and Jesus looks at him in verse 6 and says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. He's saying, look, all the things you try to strive and do in your own strength, it's just you. It's not of God. But what God does in you, that's what matters. That's what matters. Later on in John chapter 6, verse 63, we read this It is the Spirit, God's Spirit, who gives life. Read after the semicolon. The flesh is no help at all all and if you know greek and you want to tear that apart and see what that means at all it means it doesn't help at all it doesn't matter how much you want it or how much you're like i'm gonna go get it it has to be the spirit of god that does this that this work of being regenerated this work of being born again is a work of god we see here in verse 63 of chapter 6 the words that i've spoken to you are spirit and life jesus would say this is truth So Jesus looking dead at Nicodemus, a man who's trying to strive in his own power, trying to make his way into heaven. Jesus says, "You can't do it. You must be regenerated. You must be born again." How do you think a wise, well-educated man would respond in the face of that? Well, you'd hope he'd fall on his face and cry out and ask for help. But we see his reaction in point number three: the reaction. It's quite different. In verse 7, Jesus says, do not marvel. Stop there. What do you think Nicodemus was doing when Jesus told him this? Marveling. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He says, do not marvel. Imagine Nicodemus looking there going, oy vey, what do I do with this? He had no clue. He had no idea how to respond. He must be born again. And he doesn't get it. It's not something he could do in his power. All that he's done up to this point was stuff in his own strength. And now he has to rely on God. Now it's where genuine faith would come in. I must rely on God. And he's going, I don't get it. Everything's been in my strength to this point. So Jesus, knowing that he's puzzled, gives him an illustration in verse 8. And the illustration is to show how the Spirit works. He says in verse 8, he goes, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The first thing, it's interesting that Jesus uses the wind as an illustration, because in the Greek, the word wind and Spirit are the same word. It's really close to what he's talking about here. Just like the wind is just like the Spirit. But what he's saying is, Look, the wind goes where it wishes to go. And the Spirit goes where the Spirit wishes to go. And you cannot see the wind or where it's coming from or where it's headed to. And so, too, you cannot see where the Spirit's coming from or where the Spirit's headed to. However, Jesus is saying, you could see the effects of the wind. You could see the leaves shaking. You could see dust blowing up. Or for some of us, you could see your hairdos messed up. Not mine, of course. What Jesus is saying is just like the wind will leave an effect and you can see where it's been, so does the Spirit of God. That when the Spirit of God goes somewhere, you can see the effect of God's Spirit. Think about that. When someone has been born again, the Spirit is evident in their life. Just as when the Santa Ana winds kick up, the wind is evident in your life. As you come in church and your hair is a foot wide and a foot tall, we know that you've been affected by the wind. And so, too, when the Spirit of God infiltrates someone's life, we see the effects in that person's life. That they are transformed. They are renewed from the inside out. No, their hair isn't necessarily messed up, but their life is changed. It is radically changed. There's no guessing whether or not that person has been born again because the Spirit leaves evidence that that person has changed. From the inside out. It's not just change. It's radical change. The Bible puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not altered or modified. He is new. Brand new. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Brand new. This is the work of the Spirit. A radical change. The word comes from metamorphosis. It's a radical change. It's something entirely new. And it's what happens when someone is born again. They become a new creation. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter, or excuse me, 1, Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that we become partakers of God's divine nature. Listen that again. Partakers of God's divine nature. Think about that. The same Spirit of God now dwells in those who are born again. Again, not an altered version, not a modified, not a little piece, but the same Spirit of God now dwells in His children. That if you are a born-again Christian here this morning, you have God's same nature, His same Spirit within you. That's crazy. You sit and hold on to that one for a second. It's like, mind-blowing. Jesus still looking face-to-face with Nicodemus. He continues, we'll look at point number four, the rebuke. Point number four, the rebuke, we'll continue verses 9-12. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? Stop there. Who is Nicodemus? The religious leader. He's the one going out teaching everybody else. He's the leader of the Jews. Part of like the Jewish Supreme Court that oversees everybody. And he has no clue on these spiritual matters. It's like, how can these things be? So here comes the rebuke. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher? The teacher? Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay, Think about this interaction. Nicodemus was so, so educated. He was so, so religious. He tried his best to live with integrity. He tried his best to live with justice. He worked hard at trying to do good. But none of those things helped him when it came to truly spiritual matters. He was dumbfounded when he was told that he must be born again. His only response to all that is, how can these things be? all that I've been doing my whole life, all that I've put in, all the effort, you mean that doesn't matter? Jesus says, no, it doesn't matter. What matters is whether you are truly born again. Whether there's evidence that the Spirit of God has radically changed you. Jesus Himself, knowing this man in front of Him, is not born again. There's a superficial interest in this man. So Jesus addresses him knowing his heart, knowing his pride as being the ruler of the Jews, and Jesus challenges him. Pretty confrontational words of verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel? He's kind of chiding. He's, he's poking at him. You you call yourself the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? He's addressing Nicodemus' arrogance. He's addressing his spiritual blindness. He's showing him he's in need of something else. Nicodemus, all that you've been doing, you're in error. How will he respond? What will Nicodemus do? Jesus continues to plead with him. He goes, look, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen. But you do not receive our testimony. He's saying, look, we come to bear witness. Spirit, Christ, they're there bearing witness and you don't believe. He goes, how can I tell you anything else if you don't believe these simple matters? It all starts with being born again. We're not going to build any spiritual things on top of this. The foundation is being born again. And Nicodemus, if you're telling me you don't get that, there's nothing else to say. This is foundational. But church, this is also so sad. Being born again is essential to having genuine faith. To have faith that saves. And that faith is the gift of God. It's the result of God breathing life into us. The result of regeneration. That God would come and breathe life into us and give us the ability to place our trust in Him. Nicodemus didn't want any of that. Nicodemus wanted to do it in his own strength. He wanted to show that he could make it to heaven. That he could do enough and make his way there. That he could study enough. That he could try to do enough good deeds. That he could rise to the different levels of leadership and somehow believe he can make it into heaven when the reality is salvation is a gift of God. We know in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 that it says, For by grace, grace, getting what you don't deserve. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And when we speak of faith, that's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. You guys hear that? No one can boast. When God comes and does a radical work in you and transforms you, causes you to be born again, it should cause us to look up and worship Him. It should not cause us to go around and boast to one another, look what I've done. You guys remember when we went through Philip's and I found Jesus? Jesus was never lost. He came to save those who were lost. That being us. But this leads to our last point. The most glorious point here is the reward. There's a reward in all of this of being born again. Jesus finishes his conversation. Actually, we're going to continue in next week. But in our text this morning, in verses 13 through 15, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Who's he referring to? He's referring to himself. He's basically saying, look, the person who has authority on this Is the person who has full access to heaven back and forth, and that's me. I'm the one who's come here and has full authority on what I'm telling you. But then he refers to something to perk up the interest and the knowledge of what Nicodemus already has. Verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life first thing he says look i have all authority to claim these things i am the one who has descended and has ascended into heaven and he turns to this this event that nicodemus should be very well familiar with and it refers to numbers chapter 21 i'll read the little portion there in numbers 21 starting in verse 4 it says from mount Hor they went or they set out by the way of the red sea to go around the land of edom and the people became impatient on the way speaking of the Jews. It says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Stop there for a second. Look what they just said. You realize that when you complain, you're making no sense at all? They first said there's no food and no water, and then they loathe this worthless food. So which one is it? They're just complaining. They're just bleh, pouring out all this vomit. Against God and against Moses. And God doesn't take that very lightly. Then the Lord, the Lord, sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So what are they going to do? Of course, they're going to come back to Moses. And they come back to Moses and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And they ask him, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8 says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus brings this up right in this context of everything he's talking about. And he goes, Nicodemus, you know about this event. It was foreshadowing me. All that was spoken of in the Old Testament points to me that Christ looked to Him. He is our salvation. He is our hope. That just as the serpent was lifted up, Christ will be lifted up. That all who look to Him and place their trust in Him shall be saved. That is glorious news. But the point was, Nicodemus, stop looking to yourself. Nicodemus, stop thinking that you can do this. Nicodemus, stop thinking that somehow, way, you're going to do enough to please God and to make up for your sin. Because you can't. Scripture says that we're all storing up the wrath of God, but it's Christ who paid the penalty for us. And here we see the reward revealed in verse 15. Jesus says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This word here, believe, when you break it down in the Greek, it means to put one's trust in. It's not just to have an intellectual thought or agreement about something. It's to put their trust in. See the difference? Nicodemus comes and says, hey, we believe in the things you've done that you must be some teacher sent from God. Doesn't see him as who he really is. He thinks he's a rabbi, a great teacher. But he is God. He is Lord. So it's action that matters. What are we going to do with what we know? To rightly place one's full trust in Jesus is the right response. The reward here, Jesus says, eternal life. To experience the kingdom of heaven both now and forever, believer. Do you know that you can experience the kingdom of God now? It's not just like we sang, "Come, Lord." You know that's great. The glorious time when our Lord comes back. But we can experience the kingdom of God now. And not just now, but now and forever. What does that mean? It means we can enjoy God's presence and God's protection now. It means we can possess now a peace that surpasses all understanding. It means now we can be captivated by perfect love. It means now we can seize an unfailing hope. It means now we can have purpose given to us by God. That God chose us to bring Him glory. That's just part of the reward. But it's part of the reward we can experience now and forever. The question for us this morning is, have you been born again? And not by language only. Not because you can define on a a questionnaire of what kind of Christian are you and you check off, I'm a born again Christian. Just because the census lists that doesn't mean that people are genuinely born again. The statistics say that I think America is like 73% born-again Christians. But a third of them don't believe this is even God's Word. I mean, it just goes down and down on how you define what a born-again Christian is. But has there been evidence that the Spirit of God has come and radically created you a new creation? It's been rightly said that if Christianity was against the law, is there enough evidence in your life to convict you in a courtroom? enough evidence and i'm not talking about nicodemus's evidence of look all i've done look all the striving and, and i've achieved this level of leadership i'm talking about a radical transformation from the spirit of god that a new heart has been given to you new desires new purpose new pursuits have been put into your life so if you've answered yes to that praise god be in awe of who he is thank you lord for doing this work in my life but if this morning you stop and you question and go i don't know it might be necessary to look at nicodemus and then look in the mirror and go is this faith that i proclaim is this profession in christ that i proclaim is it genuine or is it just me is it things that i'm just trying to be religious i'm trying to get better i'm trying to learn more i'm trying to strive in all my power And the reality is there's no evidence that the Spirit of God has done anything. If that's where you're at, Jesus Jesus would say, repent and believe. Two glorious words. That His Spirit would draw you to repentance where you realize, God, I truly want to know You. I want to have genuine faith in Jesus Christ and I can't do that apart from You, God, drawing me. If that makes sense to you, it's because God's Spirit's working in you. Otherwise, the Scripture says, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. You say, Pastor, that's absurd. That's the most stupid thing i ever heard. Well, guess what? Scriptures say you're perishing. It's not a good thing. But if this morning you feel an urgency of, I need to do something with what I've heard. I need to respond. That's by the grace of God that He would invite you to come and place faith in Him, to repent and to believe. And church, I urge you, respond. Don't be like me in my diet that's going to start tomorrow. It's not working very good. That whole tomorrow thing doesn't work. And the urgency of repentance and faith, the reality of salvation, is that tomorrow is promised to no one. I heard the craziest story on the news about a month ago of this 24-year-old kid driving on the freeway, kicks up a piece of rebar, or the car in front of him kicks up a piece of rebar, it comes straight through the windshield, impales him and kills him. He didn't expect that to happen that day. I don't think anybody thinks that a piece of rebar is going to get kicked up on the freeway, fly perfectly through your windshield, and straight through you, and kill you. And I don't say that to to startle you and make you, oh, now I'm being scared into salvation. The reality is we can't put off spiritual things. That if the Spirit is drawing us, today is the day of salvation. But in our text this morning, we've got Nicodemus. And when it comes to Nicodemus, we're unsure. We're unsure of what happens to Nicodemus. We're unsure if we're going to see Nicodemus in heaven. And church, I don't want you to be in that same boat. I don't want you to be unsure. I don't want us to be unsure about one another. Nicodemus, all we know about him is that he came to Jesus in a superficial belief, not a saving belief. But later on, we see that he does do some things that might be evidence of faith, or they could still be superficial faith. We don't know. We know that he boldly defends Jesus to the Sanhedrin in chapter 7. We also know that he comes with Joseph of Arimathea to help prepare Jesus' body for burial. But neither of those tell us for certain whether or not he was ever born again. He could have still respected him as a rabbi, as a great teacher. We're unsure with Nicodemus. Church, don't be unsure about your own salvation. If the Spirit of God is prompting you this morning, respond by repentance, turning to him, Turn away from yourself, trusting entirely in Jesus Christ, being thankful for what He has done on your behalf. That it is finished. It's done. He's done it all. And now we can enjoy the reward. Let's pray. Father, Father, perhaps one of the most tragic interactions we see in Scripture. God, I think of the, the rich young ruler who would also come to Jesus and turn away sorrowful. And here we see Nicodemus come with a superficial belief and perhaps leave with the same superficial belief. God, I pray in Jesus' name through the power of your spirit that you would draw any man or woman in here today that has come with a superficial belief. That on a questionnaire they would agree to the facts about Jesus. They would agree to the facts of him dying for us, rising for us. They would agree to the facts of the Bible being Your Word, but they've never been born again. Father, I pray that today You would intervene. That You would draw them unto Yourself. That You would give them the gift of faith that they'd be able to respond in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That today there would be evidence of the Spirit of God coming and giving them a new heart. That they would be regenerated. That it would be evidenced by all and they would grasp and get a hold of and enjoy salvation. God, for the rest of us in this place, God, may we be humbled by your word. May we be in awe of your amazing love towards us. God, may we pursue you with the spirit you've given us to bring you honor and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.